<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, we're going to start the show here in just a second, but guess what? The 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign started at the dinner table of which radio legend? I'll start the clock now. Ah, screw it. It's Bill Press. The answer is Bill Press. Bill has been one of the leading progressive voices in the country, so I'm glad he's still out there on the left, stronger than ever. And right now, he's using that progressive voice in the Bill Press podcast. The Bill Press pod is up twice a week, an in-depth interview with a major newsmaker on Tuesdays, plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters, digging deep on the latest craziness from the GOP, the massive voter suppression bills in the states, and the Democrats' fight to keep control of Congress in 2022. So I encourage you to join me in subscribing to the Bill Press Pod. It's a must-listen for all progressives. To sign up, just go to wherever you get your podcasts, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and then tell your friends to do the same. Take it from me, I follow the Bill Press Pod, and you should too. And now, let the cartoons begin. Recorded live in the USA and covering the whole wide world. Right on! This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, April 21, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is a musician named Bob Malone, one of my new favorites on our indie music playlist here. Bob is a keyboardist, singer, songwriter, touring musician, solo recording artist, and all points in between. He's performed and recorded with A-listers like Ringo Starr, Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Avril Lavigne, Bob Seger, and he's been a part of John Fogarty's touring band since 2011. His new album is called Good People. That drops on May 21st, and his latest single, The River Gives, drops on April 30th. That's a week from Friday. BobMalone.com. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe to our bonus content at Patreon.com slash show. Okay, let's talk with the great Bob Malone. One of the topics that always comes up whenever I talk with indie musicians is, of course, the pandemic and the inability to go out on tour. How are you holding up through all of this? How are you making do through the, the pandemic and not being able to go anywhere? Uh, well, you know, I, I've been doing a show almost every week. Last year, 2020, I did a show every week, sometimes two, wow. uh, on stage at and, uh, you know, my fans tune in and they pay money and they watch the show. And uh, it's really gotten me through this. Wow, it's incredible. Uh, it's been great. And and uh, and I'm still doing them. I'm doing one Saturday. And mm-hmm. uh, so that, that's been my main outlet for playing live. I'm doing air quotes that you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's been my live-ish uh, 
performing since everything fell apart. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I get some royalty checks. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, you know, my wife still has her job, so between all those things, yeah, uh, we're okay. I mean, I've been pretty lucky overall. It's mm-hmm. more of an existential crisis where I just <laughs> like everything I've ever known has been just halted. Like I haven't. I haven't not played live for this long since probably since I was 17, you know, like oh my I've, God. Always, I've always played for a living, you know, my whole life. I, I've yeah, never yeah. stopped for this long. So, so like I, I, I remember taking a, I, I got married, you know, and, and my wife is like, <laughs> this is like 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. she, she's like, let's take a vacation. And I was horrified. I'm like, I don't take folk. If I stop working for one week, I'll never work again. <laughs> I, mean, I know exactly was, what that is. I know exactly that was what me like. yeah. for the first 15 years of my life. Like I did nothing but just you know, work. Right, right. So I took the vacation. I was just, I, I came back from the vacation and every, everyone still took my calls. So I was, I was shocked and horrified. That, yeah. Anyway, so. so yeah, right. You get back and you say, so that's what that's like. That's what right, this it was vacation amazing. thing is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this fake, what do you mean vacation? Right, right, right. And so the, for yeah. this past year, that must have been, though, uh, a great opportunity to start uh, writing some music and, and getting some things uh, down in the studio. Do you, are you able to record at home or do you record a lot uh, of your solo work uh, at a studio? Or Mostly I go to studios. Yeah. Uh, I do some stuff at home. And actually, it was a terrible time for me creatively. Like this mm-hmm. new record uh, was all written before the pandemic. Everyone assumes it was written during because the song's are so of this time. Yeah. But I think I was just, all the kind of stuff that people are going through mm-hmm. uh, right now, I was going through it already, uh, kind of emotionally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so it was, I, I found it incredibly hard to be creative during all this. Just, is you it know, just, difficult during the tragedy as you're, you're kind of, you're in the mindset of restriction and horrible news, just being bombarded with that and that yeah. sort of uh, tamps down your mojo for uh, writing stuff? Yeah, that does. Yeah. And just, uh, I don't know, the disruption of, of my life made it hard mm. to create. Yeah, yeah. And it's it I can't really put my finger on what it was. It's just it's either coming to you or it's not coming to you. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, I haven't written a song during this thing yet, you know. <laughs> was there a side I'm, of you I'm, who's going you're going to yourself, uh what if this never ends? What what if we're in this pandemic situation? I think situation that was part of it. Years? Part of yeah. it was a part of it writing songs for me also is uh because I'm going to play it for people, you mm-hmm. know, which I could do online, you know, but so, I don't know. It was just, it was just a hard time. I've never yeah. gone this long. I mean, what I did do was finish this album that's coming out. Like, yeah. We actually recorded the very last track on the day everything shut down. Oh my We're God. in the studio. I finished, I finished my take of the song that's now on a record <laughs> and they're like, uh, you know, okay. We have to leave now. <laughs> Everything <laughs> shut down. Like, God, yeah. Oh man. So that worked out. <laughs> right. Well, at least you got that in in the nick of time. I guess that's yeah. a bit of an upside, huh? Right. And then uh, the guy who mixed it, uh, Ross Hogarth, he he mixed. He has this whole rig at home, and he mixed the record over the next few months. And I, you know, we didn't have to go anywhere for that. So, what's the name of the record? 
good people. Good. Oh, so it is. So you're going to call the record the same as the uh, amazing, yeah, the incredible single that you put out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that song was out. That was the other thing too. That song was out in 2019, and mm-hmm. I was going to be make putting my record out in 2020. It was right. kind of a preview <laughs> of the thing, and that uh, that never happened. So. I mean, I, since I played the single on my show, I have received nothing but piles and piles of emails and comments and DMs about, That's great. holy crap, who is this guy, Bob Malone, and where can I get this song? And so I'm directing See, all, of know, my, all of my listeners. Send me there. everything, because you know I have very <laughs> low self-esteem, so every one of those will, every one of those will really help. You know. So is this, you know, I guess, I, imposter syndrome every morning, you know, I like it. It would be nothing like some praise from strangers to get me through my day. So, please. hey, welcome to the club. Thank Feel you for free. joining. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're. Uh, we were talking before we started here. You're originally from New Jersey. I yeah, mean, that's uh, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, your home state has a long, long tradition of producing great musicians. Uh, when did becoming a professional musician enter your plans? Uh, what, when was that first spark when you realized, oh my God, I, I want to do this for a living? I was ten. Wow. I, yeah, I was a, I, it was my after about a year of piano lessons. Mm-hmm. I'd say the first eight or ten months of piano lessons, I was just some kid who hated piano lessons, <laughs> right? And yeah. Nothing was happening, and then all of a sudden, literally, like within a month or so, I just sat down, and all of a sudden, I could do it. And then after that point, I could not be stopped. I couldn't be torn away, and all I did was music, and all I thought about was music. And, uh, and I was like, I'm going to be a musician. I never considered doing anything else ever. Like it's nothing else has ever crossed my mind since I was 10 years old. So that was when. Was it the music itself or did you? Jazz, (laughs) you know, like a weather report and, uh, and, uh, return to forever. I don't know how I found these records as an 11 year old. It wasn't like (laughs) the kids at my school were listening to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what? Anyway, mid late seventies at that point, right? Yeah. It was about 79, 78. Right. And I, I was not, uh, at all paying attention to anything popular. And then about at the age of 15, I discovered rock and roll. Then I was like, I really wanted to write songs. The epiphany there was about the communication aspect of writing a good song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that became, uh, really the thing I wanted to do well. So I'm sure your parents must have been super supportive during that first five years from age 10 to age 15 and and concert pianist. Uh, That must have been something that they were over the moon with. And then suddenly maybe rock and roll comes along and they're going, okay, all right, hang on a second. (laughs) Did you get it? It was kind of the, it was the opposite actually. They they weren't really into classical music or anything. I mean, they were, they were very supportive just in general. And like they were not musicians, they weren't people who knew any other musicians. They this was an alien thing to them, one hundred percent. Yeah, and they had to get over the idea that I would starve, you know. <laughs> and they had, uh, they, but they were very, really supportive. I mean, they, uh, you know, they paid for the lessons. Came time to go to college. I'm like, I'm going to music school. And my dad was like, well, you know, apply for a couple of non-music schools just to have something to fall back on. It's <laughs> almost like he felt it was his duty. He knew I wasn't going to do it. I, yeah, you know, well, it is a rare thing. I mean, it is no, kind of a roll of the and, dice. And I, was, and, I w- and I was set on it at such a young age that mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, you know, there was no room for options, basically. Yeah. But I did 
by 16, 17, I had this band I played on the weekends and we made money, you know, a couple of hundred bucks you yeah. know, in the 80s when you're a high school kid. Is, uh, <laughs> you know, that's quite a bit of dough yeah. for playing the piano. So then they saw at least the practical side was that, oh, yes, you can make uh, you can make money playing music. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's something in, in all parents' heads, because I went through the same thing, too, with, uh, I think, five years of piano lessons. I got into the National Piano Guild and things like that, and that was Great. that was fun for my parents, because they thought, at least while I was playing piano, that was something more serious than playing guitar or screaming into a microphone, and you're well, in much better Well, the piano player was always, like, yeah. the dork in the band that, you know, <laughs> kept everyone... Everyone was too high to play, you know, they would crack the whip. Right, know? right. But, I mean, right, to, yeah. to come of age in the 70s and 80s, I mean, there was an embarrassment of riches when it came to great keyboardists in rock music. I mean, I'm a huge Rick Wakeman fan myself. Yeah, I, I, he was one of my first big uh, yeah. big keyboard heroes. Yeah, who were some of your others? Who were the, who were the people I who mean, were inspiring you? Know, I mean, Billy Joel is the first. I heard, see, I heard, you know. And I was like, oh, I must do this. This was That was one of the first things I heard. <laughs> That's so cool. You know, uh, um, yeah, and the interesting thing about Billy Joel is uh, he's playing piano as a as a songwriting accompaniment, as opposed to something that was, uh, uh, you know, where keyboards were much more a feature of uh, of an overall band, or as, even as a solo artist. You look at uh, keyboarders yeah. like Rick Wakeman or, or Keith Emerson, who are you know d- doing really crazy shit on the keyboard and that's um there's a big difference i think between the style of music that billy joel used keyboards for and and piano as opposed to some of those prog rockers for example or even some of the flash he would just flash stuff Mm and during a song that was a song song yeah and that like i was like oh he's got chops he's uh, classically trained like i you know he's not that good looking i could do this you know <laughs> like the whole thing like he shows he doesn't show it off all the time yeah like a, a like like the prog guys right but uh, that's kind of what i aspired to i didn't really want to show it off all the time although i loved i loved uh rick wakeman i used to sit and listen to close to the edge over and over again. Oh, yeah. Incredible work, yeah. I wasn't into Prague so much as I was into close to the edge. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and I think that is... like, yeah. Some of it seemed silly to me, Mm -hmm. even though the playing was always great, but that record... It was perfect in that it went right up to the edge of silly, but it didn't go over the line. So it was it was brave, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. And that was what was so, like, singular about it. So did you always feel uh, like you were more on the rock and roll side of things as opposed to like, uh, like, especially in the first five years of the 80s, there was still this, there was a new wave uh, movement that occurred, plus a lot of techno I mean, music and so on. Were you kind of experimenting in some of that stuff too, or is it mostly grounded in rock? Uh, during that time, uh, I was not that into the music that was actually happening at the time. Like I was pretty immersed in uh, everything from you know, between 65 and, and 75 or so. Mm-hmm. I was just catching up on, you know, cl- cl- what would be come to be called classic rock, you know? Right, right. It was all stuff that happened when I was five years old, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I was really in love with that and not so much in love with what, although, I mean, the funny thing about the 80s is every song that, was a hit when I was a teenager. 
many of which I did not like. I didn't buy the record. If it came on the radio, I turned it off. Mm -hmm. Yet I know all the words to all those songs. Because when you're that age, that just seeps in there. Mm -hmm. right. So, you know, if they put on that Kaja Goo Goo song right now, I could sing along <laughs> with the whole thing. I mean, and I'm like, why do I know this? Why is this taking up room in my brain? <laughs> Well, that's what I, I, I read about uh, musicians like uh, the late Neil Peart, who, for example, uh, used to play drums along with just AM pop radio, uh, th despite the fact that he went on to become this prog and, and rock and roll uh, drumming god, right? But he started out his formative years, he was just playing along with bubblegum pop, and that's how he kind of developed a vocabulary for playing all kinds of music. So that makes total right. sense that you were, you know, at least experiencing some of that music in the 80s while not necessarily uh, yeah, gravitating was, toward it. I was into all kinds of things. I never yeah. really, uh, and to this day, like, I, I always, I mean, I, I don't really pledge allegiance to any particular genre, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, after all this, I discovered uh, New Orleans music and Roots music and, and all of that kind of stuff and Ray Charles and blues music and I mm -hmm. became really deeply immersed in that like through the 90s. I, I again detached from pop culture and just, uh, you know, learned and became this roots guy, you know. Yeah, so all yeah. that's in there on top of my classical training and my jazz fixation and my, you know, Billy Joel Elton John <laughs> thing, right? You yeah, know, all, yeah. They're all kind of mixed together. You know, I, I discovered that, uh, Dr. John, like, uh, was a big influence, you mm -hmm. know, and that whole. That whole piano style, I, I, you know, it's it's all kind of uh, in in part of my DNA of yeah yeah playing. Well, Sometimes I I get going pretty good, but it's still a little early for me back here in the West Coast. So I, I'll, you know, mid sentence, I'll suddenly lose my train of thought. I'm like, have not yet had enough coffee, so sorry about that. I, hey, look, I was on there for a second, and then I just trailed off like uh, uh, you know and. Um, uh, so that guy that did that thing that I really liked it and I can't remember his name because yeah. well look I can have five cups of coffee in me and still trail off exactly like that so trailing <laughs> off is death I mean, it's radio death yeah know, I mean I'm a professional podcast <laughs> yeah, no, you got to keep it going. Still happens, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, you you must have had the temptation to drop what you were doing and become a touring musician, uh, start recording in studio, get together uh, a band, and so on. But you instead you chose to go to Berkeley College of Music and and study at that level. Um, in fact, you know, a few weeks ago I spoke with uh, music YouTuber Rick Beato. I don't know if you're familiar with right. Rick Beato. But he has an incredible uh, college audition story that he tells on his YouTube channel. Was there anything in particular that was uh, harrowing about walking into the room to audition at Berkeley, knowing that it's, yeah, Berkeley and well, like all capital letters, huge? It was, uh, I actually auditioned at uh, Juilliard. I didn't well. get in. And uh, Manhattan School of Music, I did get in just mm -hmm. as an alternate by the skin of my teeth. And Manus, those were the three big conservatories in New York. I really wanted to go to one of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, you didn't have to audition for Berkeley. Basically, Berkeley was more um, more of a Darwinian thing. Like they'd let you in, and then you got 
humiliated out of there by not being a good player, but wow. being surrounded by other good players. So there was like a 80% dropout rate in the first semester or something like that. Like mm-hmm. everybody who, everybody who didn't cu- couldn't cut it got, you know, it was like a big cutting contest. You know? Yeah. So I, I uh, didn't have a Berkeley audition. I had, I had these week of auditions. I mean, they were extensive in, in New York. I took the bus in every day. I went to, Juilliard, I remember these, these were the these were the harrowing auditions that I, I, I walked into Juilliard, this room down in the basement somewhere in Lincoln Center, and I go in there and there's like three old calcified <laughs> dudes behind this table and there's a Steinway piano and 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 I it's really uncomfortably quiet and I sit down and uh, and the one guy goes, Start with the Bach, please. <laughs> Just like that. And I was like, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to do this. And then Manhattan School of Music, it was in an auditorium. It was in a theater. And it was the three guys out in the middle of the theater. Mm -hmm. And on before me was this girl, probably my age, 17 or whatever, 18. Beautiful, like just a beautiful girl in a white dress with a blue sash. I remember the whole thing. And she played like way better classical piano than I was ever going to be able to play. And I'm like, I got to go on after this, you know, <laughs> I got acne and, you know, <laughs> awkward. And I don't, anyway, so she comes off and I went out and that was actually the one I got in. So I did all that, but then my best friend uh, was going to Berkeley mm-hmm. and I was not going to be able to afford to live in New York while going to, uh, the dorms were so small at Manhattan School of Music that you couldn't really, yeah. like the first 20 people got a room and that was it, you were on your own. So I was going to have to live in the town I grew up in and commute in every day. And I really, really, really wanted to get out of that town. Yeah. So I went to Berkeley with my best friend and we were roommates and that's yeah. really how I went to Berkeley. But it was good. Yeah. And at that point, I just started playing every night. Like I, I got a gig playing in this this place, like, you know, people would, it was like a piano bar, and a, people would sit around, there was this, there was this one guy, uh, every night after he had had a certain amount of drinks, I'd, fi- I'd finish a song, and he'd say, you suck, and that was like, and he just sat right there, and that was, every night, the you suck guy was just, he just became part of my firmament, 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 <laughs> So you're like, hey, shut up, Dad. You're not supposed to be yeah. here anyway. Yeah, exactly. You're not supposed to be here. <laughs> oh, my God. You're not my real dad. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So uh, you made it through Berkeley. You never, you never decided to uh, yeah. walk away? No. I actually uh, got my degree in three years. I went summers. Oh, like, incredible. I wanted to finish, but I didn't want to be there any longer than I had to be there. <laughs> so I got out. It was, it was good. It was valuable. Well, it sounds like you know, I, while yeah. you were there, you were working on your 10,000 hours of live performing. I was, I, was, yeah. I was working. I was playing every night. I, I, you know, I, I was doing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I, I promised my parents I would finish college. Right, you and know, so... They were like, we don't care what you do, just finish college. Just get your, get your degree. How, so, do you, how do you go from that point to performing with guys like Ringo Starr and Bob Seger, Avril Lavigne, and so on? I mean, what it was It was the, all very gradual, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. I mean, I spent years in the trenches before I ever came close to anything like that. Wow. I, I, after college, I sat out and 
had this band and we toured all over the place. I moved to LA in 91 mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I played clubs and I kind of got my whole solo act thing together and, and, uh, I did really well. And then I started touring solo and it wasn't till later that, uh, I started, ended up working with like famous people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it must have been for a lot of famous people, you know. But oh, yeah. that wasn't the same as working with them, you know. Must have been challenging in the early '90s with grunge being all the rage to uh, oh, yeah. be a piano player slash keyboardist. Yeah, and I was doing this whole kind of uh, Dr. John meets Randy Newman meets Billy Joel kind of thing that was um, nothing about it was even remotely fashionable, <laughs> and but. And but and all these guys wanted to sign me, and uh, you know the marketing departments were like, we can't sell this, and uh, I just kind of fell between the cracks, and I came really oh. close. I got a publishing deal, like it was. I just it, it never quite happened, and I just started to uh, tour indie, you know, and yeah. it was right, you know, this is ninety four, ninety five, you know, ninety six. So you could. It was kind of the dawn of that era where you could really make a living without a record deal, just playing your own music. Right, I right. I decided I was going to do this, label or not, and I was, you know, at at up to that point, I was just I was doing a lot of like cover band gigs or whatever stuff to make my rent, you know, and mm -hmm. and I was like, I have to stop doing this because it just, you know, it's not. You can't be an artist and do this stuff every night. Yeah. So I just decided I was going to. So I got on the road. I started opening for, you know, other acts and kind of listening rooms, these kind of rooms, music type places where people really listen to your songs and, you know, legit rooms. And I, I just got in a van and I drove all over the country for years. Yeah. Doing that and built up my following. And, you know, a lot of times there was no money. And if I put on a really great show, I would sell a lot of stuff. And that's how I was able to not sleep in my van. You know, I'd, a, I'd, I'd sell CDs and mm -hmm. go to Motel 6. Or I, if I didn't sell CDs, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to kill every night because I need, I need to get a hotel room. But, but as part of you going, this is kind of a romantic thing. This is what it means to be a, like a, a working musician in the 90s. I mean, I was, I was happy. I, yeah. I, was doing, I, was, I was developing an audience for my songs. I mean, there's still nothing like singing some song that you wrote and is about your life and other people are singing along to it and they they relate to it too you yeah, know the yeah. thing about a personal song is uh it has to be personal for other people you know mm -hmm. that's when you've really succeeded well you have been able to connect unlike anything i've seen before with uh with my listeners um and i was fortunate enough to uh get a copy of good people and play it on my show, and the response has been overwhelming. So I would love to hear. Uh, you've obviously got your uh, your keyboard hooked up to your uh, your board and everything like that. So I'd love to hear uh, a live rendition of uh, of Good People. This is a wonderful, yeah. wonderful song. All right, it's got some notes in it that I don't normally hit at this hour. So wish <laughs> okay, me, it's not too early for wish you. Me, wish me luck. It's too early for me, but you know, <laughs> okay. I've, I've been on at six a.m. This is nothing. All right, good. <laughs>
live, the world's not fair. So can't breathe through the hate in the air. Oh, right. And it's not easy to see, I know. When you finally run out of hope, but there's good. Someone's always getting in your face, shooting up the place, making you lose your faith in the human race. Just remember, there's good people everywhere. Karen, she wants to save the world. She tries hard, but she's just one girl. Just incredible. Bob Malone. 
Holy crap. That is a an absolute masterpiece. I love that song so much, Bob. It's just an incredible piece of music and so right for these times. I think it's one of the that's one of the reasons why it resonated so much, I believe, with my audience, because it's uh it's so inspirational and it kind of counterpunches uh, the notion of cynicism about... I mean, right now, I think we're all going through a certain level of cynicism about our, our fellow countrymen, <laughs> our fellow yeah. Americans, in terms of just everything that's it's, happened the last four years, especially the last year. E- yeah, it's easy to to go down that path, and mm-hmm. we're encouraged to go down that path, mm-hmm. you know? But uh, I, I, a lot of this is from... You know, I get to travel a lot, mm-hmm to all of America for one thing and also uh, you know other countries and and you just no matter where you go whatever preconceived notion you have about a place you know most of the people you meet are wonderful you know you, yeah. you just that's most people yeah yeah you and know? I, you know, George Carlin for example always talks about how um, people as individuals are wonderful oftentimes though people in giant groups tend to not be so wonderful uh, is that yeah. kind of your experience too or are you you're noticing uh, something different than that no I mean yeah people individually but I, I don't know it just depends on where you go uh, mm-hmm. I mean all I as far as large groups of people I see the people that come see me play and you know, that's a certain kind of person that yeah, is yeah. going to buy a ticket to see me and come out and, and uh, you, you know, you, uh, it's, uh, it, there, there's good people everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I try yeah. to say it in another way, but there it is. The song was me just blurting out stuff without trying to be fancy about it, you know, which is the hardest thing, of course. Do you find I could I could spiel off clever shit all day long, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Wow, you're so clever!" But like, it's not the th- song that people want to hear over and over. Do you find your audience is uh, a close knit group? Like you you see some of the same faces all the time sitting in the front row, maybe? Yeah, I mean, uh, not quite that recognizable, but yeah, there's people that come to everything and mm-hmm. they have been coming for years. Yeah, and uh, you know, by online show, there's a core of people who. Hmm have watched every like I played every Tuesday in in 2020 and and there's there was this core of people who yeah. like sometimes the, sometimes there was a lot more sometimes there was there was nights where it was just that core and there was then there was nights where a lot of other slightly more peripheral people would join in but mm-hmm. there was that one kind of group of people that watched every week I I can't say how grateful I was to those yeah those people, they you know, they were just there, and uh, I got to know all their. Either there were people that I did know their name personally, or I knew what their um, their avatar name was, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they were all always there. But yeah, and live, there's there's people that come to everything. You know, it's a it's a little it's a it's a little group. You know, it's a it's a. Yeah. It's my cult, you know, so to speak. So you had to have been blown away uh, being asked to perform with a Beatle. Uh, what was it like recording with uh, Ringo Starr? Yeah, well, in my formative discovering rock and roll years, like one of the very first things I discovered was uh, the Beatles, you know, mm-hmm. which was, um, and, and Sergeant Pepper in particular. Yeah. And that was a good transition for me being this classical music guy because had lots of interesting chord changes and lots of adventurous musical stuff was going on, you mm-hmm. know? So anyway, I became a big Beatles freak. And, uh, 
um, nothing unusual there. But uh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. I, I remember I got the call that the guy who engineers for him uh, had engineered my last record at the time, the one before this one. And uh, he, so he knew me and um, he just calls me up. He's like, hey man, do you want to do a session uh, <laughs> with Ringo? He's like totally, ca like he sees him every day, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so you know, I set the phone down and I ran around in circles. Going, ah, 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 ah. Well, what's what's the money like, man? You know, I didn't, I, I didn't say that at all. Right. No, a I never call. asked. I never asked what it paid. It paid pretty good too. Hey, you want to perform? Best pay, yeah. best pay I ever got for not asking. You know, so, <laughs> you're like, so, well, you know, oh, I, I, if, I'm being asked to perform with a beetle. What's in it for me? No, I, know, I got the a... I got the check later. I was like, I totally forgot that this pay. <laughs> I, I gave like zero shits about getting money for this. So, uh, so yeah. So I just he's like, okay, cool, man. You know, uh, it's a. Uh, it's Monday. It's at Ringo's house. I'm like Ringo's house. <laughs> Ringo's house. <laughs> Which was in a Hollywood Hills. Like it took me ten minutes to get to Ringo's house. Right. <laughs> I remember. I come home. I tell my wife, and she's all excited. And then we like we have Ringo's address, so we look it up like in Google Maps, and you can see the gate, right, and the garbage can. And she's like, "That's Ringo's garbage can." <laughs> and I was like, "OMG, OMG, it's Ringo's garbage can." Anyway, so. I went over there and yeah. uh, I pulled, you know, went up the driveway, pulled into the big, you know, the big seven car lot. And it was like the <laughs> giant uh, peace and love uh, sculpture. Wow. That was really cool. And I walked over to the like the wing of the house. I had the studio in it and went in and Ringo appeared and he was just really nice, really nice person. Knew mm -hmm. exactly what he wanted musically. Yeah. Uh, and it was... Uh, and I could tell, you know, the thing about the Beatles is people whose origin story, like all these famous rockers from the 70s, they all have the same origin story, which mm -hmm. is, uh, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So, yeah. to, so, so to all these people who have become huge stars, they're still in awe of the Beatles, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then a guy like me is in extra awe, you know. So uh, my point was he really went to great lengths to put you at ease, you know, he was yeah. very friendly and, and, uh, he, he kind of knows that his status, you know, in the whole thing. And he, right. he just uh, makes you comfortable so you can, because part of me is like, I couldn't just do a normal session. Like it was, you know, in a way it was a normal session. I came mm -hmm. to play a tune and, you know, but you're just like, you can't get over that. It's Ringo. you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So anyway, I start playing, and everything's going great. And then there was a spot where I did a fancy lick, and Ringo like nods in approval. And then I fucked up immediately because I was like, he liked it, he liked it. Ah! See, I always love to hear stories like that because <laughs> because you know I've talked to other musicians who who have played with you know sort of a listers in their careers, and and uh, I always say, well, were you nervous going in? And they're like, no, it was a piece of cake. I went right in, I blasted through it, and that was it. Like Rick Beato, yeah, I did a session with this and this guy and that guy, and it was no problem. I walked out, and it was a great success. But I yeah, love to I'm hear like the that, reality that it yeah. is nerve wracking <laughs> to be in that position. It's really, to be honest, it was only uh, like I've played with a lot of other 
other famous people and none of it was nerve wracking yeah. like this was. Mm-hmm. You know, which I, it, this would just felt different than any other people. I mean, I was in awe of the other famous people I've played with yeah, and yeah. I loved them, but I wasn't nervous so much. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain. Like I knew I, you know, I know I can do the gig. I, you know, but it was just, you know, a beetle. <laughs> right. That's just it. It's not, not the same plane of existence as other mere mortal rock musicians. <laughs> right. Well, meantime, I mean, you had performed on stage with uh, Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, Jimmy Buffett. How did you end up hooking up with John Fogarty? And, and how did that relationship uh, manage to last as long as it has? Uh, I got the call. We had a mutual colleague. Mm-hmm. And he's like, um, you know, they uh, John Fogarty fired his keyboard player and they're looking for a new guy and I've been really just hyping you up to give you a call. So you probably will hear from them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear from them. And six months went by and nothing happened, which is mostly what happens in show business. You yeah. Know, Somebody tells you something's going to happen. It doesn't happen. So I didn't really think too hard about it. I just went on about my life. Yeah. And uh, I got six months later, out of the blue, I get, I get this email uh, asking if I want to come audition for John. And uh, I'm like, sure, no problem. And I was really excited about that. So I, you know, I went back. I, it was funny. I, I went, I was like, I'm going to learn all the songs. I'm going to learn all the hits. Mm-hmm. And I go, and every single one of them, I'm playing along. I'm like, oh, I know this song. Everybody knows this song. I know how this goes while it's happening. I yeah. don't have to learn anything. So uh, aside from what parts do it, anyway, the point was they're just timeless, you know, and yeah, they're, yeah. they're in, embedded in us, these songs. And uh, so I show up, and uh, you know, Bob Fogarty, who's John's brother, he kind of runs the operation. And, huh. And Julie, his wife, who manages him, and and they were there. It was John's. It was their house up in Hollywood Hills, mm-hmm. and uh, the stuff was set up in the garage. And they had like the, the guitar tech was playing guitar, and his two sons were playing bass and drums, and they had uh, like a Hammond organ there for me to play. So I start playing and. And they had not heard of me, and they really wanted someone they knew, I think. And yeah, so yeah. They, they weren't counting on liking it, you know? Hmm. So Julie's watching me play, and, and I play a couple songs. She's getting more and more excited. She, like, tapes me on her iPhone, and hmm. she's like, hold on a second. She goes in the house, and she's in there for what seemed like hours. It was probably, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes or something. And she comes back out with John. And then I played a couple of more songs for him, and that was it. He's like, uh, you want the gig? We're going to Russia next week. <laughs> it was like, wow. Yeah, we, we did a couple of, we did like a couple of gigs in the Midwest, like almost immediately after I got the job. And then we went to Russia. That was, and played for 300,000 people in Kazan, Russia. 
It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine uh, part of your appeal and, and maybe what uh, appealed to John Fogarty about you and certainly his wife is the fact that not only can you play, but you've got amazing stage presence. Um, and, and that's something that you can bring to the table as well that not a lot of guys can do. Um, how did you end up developing that? Did that just come naturally for you that you could uh, command oh, yeah. an audience? Uh, not naturally at all. I mean, yeah. I was bad at it at first. Hmm. Uh I always loved the idea of being entertaining. Like I, yeah. I, there are people who can just stand there and not move and are so magnetic that they're entertaining. Yeah. But uh, I was not exactly that kind of presence, and I, uh, and I was stuck behind a piano. Like you can't walk around with it. You can't go anywhere, and uh, and which is good because every time I've ever tried to stand up and sing, like a, I would trip over shit, and you know I'd get lost and walk off the edge of the stage. Like I was born to just stay in one place. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, and but I, I, uh, and playing live is is like playing, being a great musician or and, and or singer or whatever is secondary to your ability to command a room, you mm-hmm. know, to, and, and I watched other people in the way they could own a room. It's essential because yeah. they will go in your direction if you can own them. And it's all about just how you present yourself and what you say. And it's, it's a vibe and you know, when it's happening, you know, when they're yours and you can now bend them to your will. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I used to, Early 90s, I used to videotape. I had this video VCR camera, and I used to tape every show and then just watch it and slowly eliminate stupid shit that I had done for my set (laughs) and then then emphasize stuff that worked, you know, because you can't can't always tell when you're doing it. You have to see it. And when you see it, that which is embarrassing becomes painfully clear right away <laughs> do you have do you have a lot of spinal tap There's, moments as you're looking yeah back? right exactly yeah. you know i like that there was that time i couldn't get out of my pod you know, <laughs> <and I thought. laughs> yeah that'd be hilarious suddenly john fogarty starts incorporating scenery, yeah, scenery and yeah. props on his show <laughs> you're in a pod. Yeah. so by the time by the time i got the fogarty yeah <laughs> uh i you know i'd been i'd been doing my solo show for 15 years or mm-hmm. whatever 20 years yeah and uh, I knew, you know, I had all of it together. So right. yeah, I had showmanship, and I loved it, being yeah. entertaining. Yeah. And uh, so it, that was a bonus, besides being able to play. And uh, and he loved that I really had roots music knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. he he would like, you know, he asked me to play some stuff. He wanted to hear like a Ray Charles thing, and a, you know see if I knew what that was and how to play. And I was like, oh, I'm into that. New Orleans kind of, you know, you know. Yeah, he loves stuff. Wow, like that. wow. And but, you know, Ray Charles is notoriously difficult to play, isn't it? I don't know if it's difficult. I mean, no one can sound like him. He was just right. s- such an amazing singer. But... Uh, it's just a style that mm-hmm. I think everybody should immerse themselves in for a while. You know, yeah, like he kind yeah. of invented soul music and he took the music from the church and put secular lyrics to it, you know. And then later in his career, he sang, he sang all kinds of music. Like he had the same kind of electric, eclectic thing that, that I love. You yeah. know, he, he was 
you know, he did that country record, but he just made everything sound like Ray Charles. You know, that was the right. the point of it all. But, you know, I, I, John just, he loves roots music and he's a real, he's like got encyclopedic knowledge of it. Huh. So, you know, when you play with people who are uh, famous, like they expect that you're going to show up knowing their songs, but right. they really want you to like what they like, mm -hmm. you know? I'm like this too when I hire other musicians. Like, okay, you're gonna learn my song, but do you know where I'm coming from? Do you like what I like? You know, and it may, the vibe is totally different when that person had to, has the same kind of musical background, knowledge, whatever you want to call it, that you have. There's just a more sympathetic kind of melding. Right. Uh, so it was like that. He wanted to know if I dug what he dug basically oh yeah sure sure that it, was part of it i mean they were short on time so they had to hire me but you know and then at first i was just in the back playing an organ and i think they were just julie was watching me do showmanship type stuff john didn't care his back was to me you know mm -hmm. he just wanted to know he, like he liked the parts i was playing so yeah it became I, I got more and more kind of featured as the years went by and what? i kept the gig for so long by just you know I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> well, it also must be gratifying to, to be doing solo work at the same time. Because I imagine a lot of guys who end up with uh, a touring musician like John Fogarty would be tempted to maybe not do their own stuff and just kind of fall back on that one gig. But you're, I mean, you've been touring for two decades on your own as well yeah, as he, John Fogarty. He doesn't do enough gigs that I would just live off of that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and musically... I wouldn't want to just do one gig. Like, as much as I love, and I really love his songs. I mm -hmm. love playing with him. I was, a, I was a huge fan way before any of this ever happened. Do you have, do you have so, to trigger but, the hand clap sound at the beginning of uh, Center Field? Is that <laughs> no, you? no, Kenny Aronoff does okay. that. He's <laughs> right. got a little pad. He, got you. Tick, tick, <laughs> ga, ga, ga. And I, I, yeah, usually what I do is I try to make eye contact with him, and then I clap all off time. <laughs> You know, to try to, sure he loves that yeah it's it's just become a long-running in joke i'm like there yeah. you go. anyway it never it never it's never thrown him off he's you know he's a rock well, <laughs> before we uh, before we wrap up, because I see we're running long now, I got to hear the uh, forthcoming single, The River Gives. Uh, that drops uh, a week from Friday on April 30th, right? It um, does. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry. I got off mic there. Uh, yeah. It. Um, the River Gives comes out on the 30th. Yeah. And that'll also be on uh, Good People as well? Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Wonderful. Okay. Ready? Yep. Okay. Good. Rise. 
masterpiece holy crap that is the river gives uh your forthcoming single dropping on april 30th my god bob when did you discover you could sing too i mean it's one thing to be really great uh on keyboards piano etc but to combine that with vocals is extraordinarily rare i mean when did you did you just start doing it once you discovered rock or uh, yeah i started you... doing it was terrible i was bad at it for a long time some huh. people still say i'm bad at it <laughs> no no no, I, no 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 i i i had kind of you know, I, I wasn't a natural at singing. I just wanted to sing so badly that I just kept hammering away at it until I was able to come up with something that worked. That was basic. Yeah. That's basically my singing. Like I had the the instrument I had to work with was not the greatest, and I just kind of, uh, you know, I just I sang a lot until uh, I I really. Uh, I did a ton of crappy bar gigs in my youth, and mm-hmm. those were the best thing that ever happened to me because, yeah. you know, I sang four hours a night, and it really allowed me to fail, you know, not on a big stage where yeah. it mattered. It just kind of learn and get better, learn how to work a crowd, learn how to sing effectively, and all of those things happened kind of off the radar in tiny little places. 
Yeah, you know, your vocals remind me a lot of another indie musician that we love to play on the show, Michael McDermott, who's uh, right. also represented by Mike Farley. And uh, Michael's one of my favorites. And you guys both have very similar voices. In fact, I'm just going to throw this seed out there. I'd love to hear a collaboration between you and uh, Michael McDermott. I think that would be an outstanding uh, duet. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, one of your other uh, collaborators, Trissette, is on my playlist as well. How did you end oh, up? That's uh, awesome. How'd you end up hooking up with her? She, uh, well, my wife is a musician. Mm -hmm. She's a public defender and a musician. When mm. I met her, she was traveling the folk circuit playing solo. She just wow. She did could got real burnt out on the music business. She oh, I've, you know what? I can't. Yeah. I, you know, they're a dime a dozen. Those musicians slash lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, she always wanted she wanted to help people. You know, she wanted to. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she, uh, but she got invited to play this festival in, in the UK. Yeah, it was right when her her back went out, and she was going to have to have back surgery, and she was in oh. tremendous pain, and she wasn't going to go. Like she was in so much pain, and uh, and I'm like. Well, if you don't go, you're going to be depressed and you're never, you know, you're, you're, ne you're going to regret not going. Yeah. And if you go, you're going to be in pain, but you'll have gone. If you, if you don't go, you're also going to be in pain, but regretting having not gone. So you might as well go. Mm -hmm. So we, we bundled her up and got her to the airport. She went to England to play. So she knew a guy that she had met on, uh, on MySpace. Hmm. This musician, and he had helped hook her up with some extra gigs to kind of round out the festival gig. And uh, his friend was Trissette, who was living in London at the time. Yeah. And Trissette and her ex-boyfriend, uh, Mick, was this great bass player. They were both from Australia, and they were both living in uh, London. And uh, Karen shows up, and they know all of her songs. They're ready to mm -hmm. go, background vocals. And so he had put a band together for her. So they did the gigs, and the gigs were great, and everyone became really good friends. And they met, and then, and then Trissette and Mick moved back to Australia, where they're from. And uh, I toured, especially like over the last, you know, 15 years, I've done like 10 tours of Australia, you know. And, I, and so I was going there at, every year at that point. Yeah. And so I started using them on my tour to, you know, be in a band. And Karen would come along for some of them. And uh, we all just became really great friends. And Trissette really wanted to come to America. Mm -hmm. So she started coming here. And she'd like live with us for a few months at a time mm -hmm. and go home. And she finally got her visa to uh, stay here and play music. And, that's, and so she started working with my band all wow. the time. Like she's all over these recordings uh, that, that are on my last two records and um and then uh i got her on a john fogarty gig for uh, 2019 they added background singers oh that's great and so she's just been uh you know and and she plays piano so i love having her open for me because you don't have to move any shit you know <laughs> yeah right like the worst thing is having to move the piano you know you get mm. it set there and it's large and heavy and you know, it's never it's never right after they move it. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. All she had to do is sit down and play my piano. That's you know. Yeah, I find anyway. uh, talented musicians often attract other talented musicians. It's strange the way that works. Oh yeah, you, you can't really be friends with somebody who sucks. It's, <laughs> it's, because right, it'll come yeah. up at some point, and <laughs> if you're really a 
friend, you're not going to lie about it. Or I don't know. It's it's hard to explain, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, why there's so many bad breakups with members of bands where you have to kick yeah, someone like out of the band. Yeah, like if Karen Karen was beautiful and smart, but if she had been a bad songwriter, I don't think like she told me she's like, it doesn't matter if you'd been a bad songwriter. No way I would have married you. you know? <laughs> oh, Karen's your wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah Karen's okay. my wife. Right. Oh, that's anyway, wonderful. That's, that's the Trizzy story. And she's just a wonderful person. Do you, do you have one you know. more? Do you have time for one more question, Bob? Because I want to ask yeah. you about something. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if this is a sore subject, but it's one thing that I've observed a lot. And in fact, uh, you know, I mentioned Rick Beato earlier and something I talked about with him. It must be difficult being a session musician now in the age of sampling and so much digital music where people can just sit and drop samples into a timeline. Uh, Are you running up against that? Uh, How are you able to break through it? Uh, What do you think of all of it? I mean, being a session guy is kind of a bonus to... I, I would say my main living was always going and doing my own songs and yeah. touring and... and uh they can't really take that away from me. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like yep. that's my own personal commodity that nobody else can sell. Mm-hmm. And the session work just kind of happened over time and crept up on me. I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm in LA where I'm still, uh, for sessions, I'm still competing with like amazing people that I grew up listening to, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I get a fair amount of session work and yeah, it's different. I mean, uh, it's different for everybody. There's less of it. And yeah, a lot of people just work at home. You know, the styles have changed. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I, when I started, that was already in motion. Like the late 80s yeah. was when drum machines were happening. Like I remember uh, you would go into some club or hotel lobby and that was that was the beginning of some dude with a guitar <laughs> and like a sequencer, right? Yeah. He had like everything was canned. Mm-hmm. And that would be the music. Whereas a few years before that, when before I had entered the music business, uh, you had to hire actual players, right? So it all really began 30 some years ago. So that's the kind of the environment I came up in, but yeah. I could always play and sing by myself. And I never went in for the, the canned stuff. I just, I was like, if I have to do that, I'll just quit before i have to do that kind of thing yeah, yeah. but i i could do a really entertaining show just sit down and play and sing and rock and just do it by myself <laughs> that's right so uh but that all started back then you know so i've i've always kind of come up in that environment you know there was always uh you know the became the the prevalence of home recording mm-hmm. uh happened more you know starting around the beginning of the 2000s like when pro yeah. tools i can remember this transitional period in the 90s where you were still recording onto at that point two inch tape had disappeared mm-hmm. and you were recording onto i can't remember what it was the adats oh yeah this yeah. kind of digital tape mm-hmm. you know and everyone was using that and if you had a budget they'd bring in the pro tools guy <laughs> who was the specialized person who knew how to use pro tools right and it was, and like, so you'd, you'd get a take and it was really good, but you missed this one chord, was a little off. And I'd be like, oh, let me just uh, punch in that one chord. And, and the Pro Tools guy's like, no, I got it. And he'd just move it. And you're like, oh my God, you don't have to be good anymore. They can just <laughs> fix it. You're right. So, I, so that all happened. Then once everybody 
could afford and have Pro Tools, then that changed the world because mm-hmm. now all you needed was your laptop and you could record legit sounding music. You know, you didn't need to go to the studio anymore. I still went because I like to cut my rhythm section live and, you know, it depends on what kind of stuff you're going to do. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that all changed. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, of course, the people that call me are not the people that are, are using samples and doing that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're old school people who want a player, you know? Yeah, right. Right. So they, they, I'm, I'm a, one of the guys they call when they want that kind of thing. Oh, know? yeah, yeah. And I think that's always going to be a commodity, Bob. I, I think there's uh, limitations to using uh, a lot of samples where you're kind of stuck and with the obvious other downside of duplicating the same sample that maybe some other recording artist threw into their song as well. There's nothing yeah. particularly unique about that, right? Yeah, I mean, there, at this point, there are lots of people doing really unique stuff with it and really cool stuff. It's just a different way of making music. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, there's, there's stuff I hear all the time and I don't necessarily like the production. I don't like the sound of it. It's not for me. It's yeah. not, uh, it's, I'm not the target audience, but I, I often hear a great song there. I'm mm-hmm. like, it's still a great song. Right. It right. may not sound like what we're used to. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, the biggest downside is, is presenting that live. Some people manage, to, they make these very programmed sounding kind of records. And when they play live, if they use players, sometimes they use players triggering electronic sounds, but it still have that live player energy. And people that sing to tracks, uh, it's just weird. Like there's no energy. Yeah. Yeah. With that. There's right? no spontaneity or organic yeah, it's, flavor it's to just, it. You're not, you're just not feeling it. Yeah. You know, I understand that some of those productions are very hard to replicate with players because it's just, they go about it in a radically different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that started in the eighties. I remember if you were playing top 40 in 85, 86, when I kind of was, you know, a, like just started playing, uh, it became increasingly difficult for band, live bands to replicate the records that were coming out because they were mm-hmm. programmed, they were using samples, they were using all kinds of stuff that was not played by people. And so, you know, and you know, those kind of gigs, the whole idea was to sound exactly like the record. Yeah. You know, so when you played Proud Mary, you could sound exactly like the record. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And but when you played the the stuff that was coming out at the time, it was incredibly hard to sound like the record. Nobody did. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. it almost became like people were uh, giving up on now they can like. Yeah, because that I mean, the difference was that technology was kind of expensive then. And people who had record deals and were in studios and stuff could do it. But you you couldn't always necessarily replicate that on stage with some average bar band. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's been an ongoing phenomenon for mm-hmm. a long time. Like I listen to some of these eighties records. There's this station they play at my gym. It's got this, this weird format. It's like new stuff mm-hmm. and, and eighties like dance eighties stuff. Wow. And nothing in between, nothing before or nothing from the nineties, nothing like it's just weird, but it's amazing how that stuff holds together. Like they, those records from now often just fit right in with those kind of synth pop 
records that got made back then. Oh yeah, everything old. You know is what new I mean? Again. Like yeah. they, they really are the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so I've been living with that my whole life, basically. Right, my right. Whole working life. Yeah. Well, Bob, but I just I, kind of decided I wanted to be. I just detached myself from having to worry about that and, and just mm-hmm. went for the kind of organic thing that I like to do and I just do it. Okay. That sounds Go like the, the best, absolutely the best approach to take. And it's obviously been quite uh, successful for you. And I have yeah. to say, in addition to being an amazing uh, singer, songwriter, keyboardist, session player, uh, performing with all these people, you're an amazing podcast guest. I have to just say, because you're, you're funny. You, you're, the songs were incredible. Uh, you know, what a blast. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, no problem. The new single is called The River Gives, available everywhere you get your digital music on April 30th, a week from uh, this Friday. Uh, the new album is called Good People, and the website is bobmalone.com. Links in the description for everything. Thank you so much, Bob. Come back on the show Anytime you want. You have an open invitation. I'd love to talk with you more about uh, all of this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to call you tomorrow. (laughs) Just kidding. Not a problem. I have another show tomorrow, so you're welcome. I'm I'm going to go out to D.C. and stalk you. you (laughs) All right, good. I'll keep an eye on the shrubs (laughs) outside the house. Keep an eye on the the shrubs. You never know what's in there. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, my friend. It uh, It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. You bet. (laughs) 